Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Andy Chen of Kotu and Jose Gardado, founder of a new company in the talent space. Uh, you, you guys are both the uh, best talent experts I, I know and, and my go-to uh, for, for many uh, t- talent topics. So I'm thrilled to have you both on the podcast. Thank you both Thank for coming you. on. Awesome. Thanks for having us. So why don't we zoom out a little bit? Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, the evolution of VC talent landscape. And it also provides an introduction a little bit. Andy, you spent, what, eight years at Clanner? I did, eight years at Clanner. Eight yeah. years at Clanner. Jose, you were at uh, Andreessen Horowitz. You were at YC. Why don't you guys both give a uh, way of in- giving introduction about yourself, also introduction of how in the last decade, two decades, the, the talent function has been viewed uh, at venture capital firms. So in, in the 16 plus years that I've been doing recruiting, VC talent has gone from sort of a a nascent uh, and non-existent force in the market to a a very prevalent uh, and now ubiquitous concept within VC firms. Andy was sort of the one of the first talent partners that I'd ever met, and this is now almost 10 years ago. What he did, I think, in many ways was emulated across lots of different VC firms in terms of providing counsel to founders, building a network that's beneficial to the firm, and ultimately making impactful hires across the portfolio. Yeah, my background is a bit unusual. And standing here today as an investor working backwards, I was a talent partner at Kleiner for eight years. And before that, I was in the CIA for two years. Long story there. Not in recruiting. I was, we won't talk about that. Um, and then before that, I was at Revere Partners as one of the early employees um, as a recruiter there. And I managed the engineering recruiting practice. And then prior to that, I was an engineer. And so everywhere I've gone, I've gone from engineering to recruiting to weapons analysts to talent partner now to investor. And it's safe to say that in that first year of every single role, I didn't know what I was doing. And so to answer your question, when I went to Kleiner in that first year, I had no idea what this industry was like, quite frankly, because it wasn't really invented yet. Uh, the person who hired me, who's probably the best talent person I've ever met, Jill DeBobany, you know, she was truly the first hired into industry in, I think, 1999. Both Sequoia and Kleiner hired a talent partner. And it was just her and then for a long time. And then she hired uh, Jordan Ormond. And then I joined. And so at the time, the charter was to like build out our talent strategy. And uh, along the way, we founded what was called the Kleiner Fellows Program, uh, the KPCB Fellows Program, which helped bring university students into kind of Silicon Valley. And then along the way, in the eight years, we oversaw about 1,000 searches across the portfolio. So it's, uh, you know, to answer the, the question, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, um, but we did what was right. We listened to our customers who were our founders. And, and from there, we learned that they needed counsel around executive hiring. They needed kind of recruiting strategy help. They needed, um, you know, uh, comp advice as well, too, which was big, a big part of that. And so we kind of figured it out along the way. Yeah. And I'm curious to talk more about how the function of talent partners or, or, or recruiters at venture firms have changed, you know, in 2020 now, what did it look like in 2010? But more so, I also just want to talk about how the craft of recruiting itself uh, has evolved and and what have we learned uh you know from from 2010 to 2020 to even even back b- before then yeah yeah Tw- 2010 i think um you were starting to see the advent of 
uh, heads of talent popping up at startups at B and even A rounds. Uh, prior to that, I, th- I think it was a far more piecemeal. You had a very fragmented uh, market of sort of third-party vendors, uh, executive search, and then bifurcated down to the, the sort of contingency stuff. Nowadays, uh, you know, it, it's sort of common practice for a company. If you've raised a, a Series A, you have 10-plus technical hires to make, you go get a first recruiter, and a lot of companies will call that a head of talent. Uh, and so I think that that title is, is sort of used very loosely. But um, the value proposition is a lot clearer today. Um, even if you just have somebody in there who doesn't drop the ball with candidates and, and allows you to kind of move people through the process consistently, that is such a value add for the amount of money that a company is paying a recruiter that I think most founders very easily make that choice. I think you also have VC talent partners that are advocating that strategy uh, as opposed to sort of trying to do it yourself. And, uh, you know, nobody likes um, paying lots of money to ag- money to agencies. And so, you know, being able to have that capability in-house is 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 beneficial for a lot of companies, even at earlier stages than it used to be. There's a common theme that people say in, in regards to company building that people matter the most. You know, that's, that's what really drives a company forward. And I argue that's very true. But I didn't really experience it until probably my second year at Kleiner. Two instances. One was uh, an entrepreneur named Mike McHugh, uh, who founded Flipboard. His first hire was a recruiter. And that person found, recruited the co-founder to the company. Wow. I thought that was a very bold move, very present at the time. Uh, the second one was uh, when a guy named Jose was brought into a company called Nest very early, I think sub-25 employees. And I thought that was a little bit unusual as well, too. You know, Back then, you didn't see recruiting become a thing within the company as a standalone function until much later, until there are 50 to 100 to 150 people. And and I think it was just mind shift, sh- uh, the, this shift in the mindset around if people matter the most, I need to really invest in that. I need to bring someone in to help me recruit. Because if I'm going to spend 50% of my time recruiting, I need to make sure it's well leveraged and that we have a really good process. We have a good candidate experience. We have the right funnel itself. And a lot of companies didn't do that. Two, I think it was also a competitive market, right? And things became very, very competitive amongst companies. And in order to stand out, you needed to have, you really need to invest in, in recruiting and talent internally at the company. And it's not just sourcing profiles, um, because I think a lot of times that is uh, sort of conflated with what recruiting is, is, is top of funnel. Uh, and it's absolutely, to Andy's point, uh, candidate experience, right? Anybody who is good enough to be hired at, you know, Series B Startup X is good enough to be hired at Google and Facebook, uh, and they pay a lot more. And so why should someone choose this company? And so running a flawless recruiting process is one of the things that you can control uh, in hiring where, you know, it's, it's rife with uncertainty. And so... It has sort of matured as a discipline in startups. I think you've had individuals who have matured as leaders alongside of it. Uh, and nowadays you have, you know, potentially hundreds of people who have been through the hyperscale phase as a recruiting leader. Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, you could count these people on a couple, two hands. Yeah. What's the equivalent or the closest thing to something like the lean startup, which was sort of a mental model or a framework that now gave founders a, a way to be like, oh, this is how I should approach idea validation. What's the closest thing like that for, for recruiting uh, that has helped give founders or recruiters a new mental model or framework for approaching uh, team building or company building? That's an interesting question, actually. So imagine when you went, I think you remember a time when you went from high school to college. Did you go to college? Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know today, today, right? <laughs> and and like the, the moment you went from high school to college, I think there was a huge jump in regards to the pond. Right, you were, um, you know, uh, a small fish or a big fish in a small pond, and then you went from a small fish or big fish to a really large pond, right? And then you go from college to life, 
and it was just like that calibration step of of understanding what what truly was excellent. And I have the saying, you know, in recruiting, which is you got to train, you got to be calibrated on, on what truly excellent is. You know, you can go through uh, an entire slate of interviews and realize that all the people you met are mediocre, but you just pick the best mediocre thing or person within the group. And so you want to be as calibrated as possible. So I always say that the Lean Startup Kit for me is is going to be you got to meet truly excellent people in the recruiting funnel. And it's really important to be calibrated on that as, as fast as possible because it's more important to meet one truly exceptional head of product, head of engineering, head of sales, head of marketing than it is to meet, I would say, 100 good ones because you really understand what really excellent is. Yeah. I would say that there is no direct analogy to the Lean Startup the most comprehensive guide that I've seen is what Holloway just produced on technical recruiting and hiring. That's a 300-page document, not exactly lean. Um, what I would say is that a lot of this advice, uh, VCs have sort of found that this this has market value, and that's why they hire talent partners to impart this advice, because sometimes it's very anecdotal. Other times you sort of take a, a broad sample and try to come up with the best sort of composite idea. But, you know, like questions like compensation, you know, questions like when is the right time to, to bring in uh, an executive, there, there isn't necessarily one right answer. And so seeing lots and lots of examples of this, you know, enables a VC talent partner or, you know, someone in the industry to sort of give credible advice. There's no one neat, tidy place to get all of this information in, in one place. You know, I think a lot of the VCs now have also um, turned to content marketing as a way to bolster their audience uh, and sort of become more credible as thought leaders. And so you'll find, you know, an interesting blog post here and there. Uh, but every VC is going to have their own talent playbook. Every VC is going to have their own sort of voice that they're they're trying to achieve in the market. And so, like, there is no uh, sort of Bible on, on the talent space the way I would refer to, to Lean Startup. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to go to a, a number of different topics here, subtopics within recruiting, and just get your your mental models and, and frameworks firm. One is, you know, Keith Raboy has this, has this quote, or is this tr- uh, the story that he was, you know, jogging around the Stanford Park with Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel told him, hey, you know, we're never going to recruit the same people that are going to Google and Facebook or, or one of the biggest companies at that time because we need, uh, you know, we can't compete with them. We can't offer the same, uh, capital, uh, same comp, et cetera. And so we need to find mispriced assets. You sort of tended to lean towards people who are younger because they haven't been priced yet. Do you agree with that, that approach or how do you respond to that? I think that there are startup people and there are big company people and there are people in the middle. And for a long time, that was the battleground between startups and uh, big companies. Um, and now I think that the strategy that the big companies have taken in compensating so aggressively has really thinned out that middle ground. And so you have the startup purists. And then, yes, you have people who are either early in their career who are w- willing to take more risks. Or you have somebody perhaps who's been at a company, big company for long enough that now they're ready for a, a change of pace. Uh, but like... You know, at, at its core, somebody who is swayable by the cash offer is probably a very low chance of conversion candidate for a, for an early stage startup. I would agree with the statement less in regards to the actual output, but the whole kind of thesis around it, which is first principles thinking. And you know, I've been unwittingly or unknowingly forced to do this in every single role I've had. But I think um, if you look at great companies out there, they think very original and they think from a first principles perspective of where they want to go in regards to recruiting. Uh, Netflix's culture, which is very well documented in regards to the recruiting practices, um, is very distinct. And I think they came up with a with that view. And I think Patty and and, and the team came up with it from a ground up perspective. Um, and so they, they knew what they wanted to solve for and they broke it all the way down to the beginning. And so playbooks are good. 
I think they're good to understand, to know what's happening out there, but you really need to apply that and customize it for your company. A good example of this is a, a company called Gusto. Um, the way they do recruiting, I think, is very clever. Um, we're, we're in the recruiting process when they give an offer, they call the candidate, and every single person along the touch point um, that spoke to the candidate share their feedback about why they're excited about them joining the company. All in a room. And then, it's, and then they all start clapping. It's a, there's a lot of energy itself. And then, and then the offer has delivered itself. And so it's, um, had they followed the playbook, they would have never come to that, that experience that I think has helped them propel themselves into a really interesting recruiting position. I was just going to add that there was one thought I had on, on the, the, the playbook or the Bible, um, and, and it goes back to a comment that you made, Andy, about calibration and speaking with experts. So uh, one, uh, one book that, that uh, I, I found very helpful is uh, Who by GH Smart Method. Basically, you know, speak with experts, understand what you're looking for, solve for the, the impact that you're actually trying to see, uh, and measure the competencies that the likely successful candidate would have. And you, know, you, you definitely can't beat that. Are there any other non-obvious takeaways from that, from that book, or what did you find most, most meaningful or impactful? The distinction between uh, a typical job description, which is sorted more like a list, right? A list of, uh, of tasks that this person will perform. Uh, but like a lot of people can come in and perform the tasks, which you're actually looking for is somebody to solve a specific problem for you. And if somebody has not solved that problem directly analogously, you are looking for supporting evidence that they have solved problems that are similar or that they have the skill set that would enable them to solve the problem at hand. And so that's, that's where the competencies come in. You know, if, if, um, if one of the outcomes is, you know, scale the team, double the team size in one year, the competency is high velocity hiring. And then the question to test that competency is tell me about a time you hired really rapidly, what went well, what didn't. Yeah. One thing that you, uh, both know a lot about, uh, is, uh, is co-founders, co-founder dating, uh, picking the right co-founder. Of course, there's, there's been tropes for, for many years of, Hey, you need to work with somebody who you've went to college with or have worked with in the past. Yeah, and people who compliment you, et cetera. There's, there's all these tropes. What's what's right? What's the wrong way to think about it? Uh, Andy, maybe let, let's start with you. What, what have you learned about a co-founder dating, co-founder matching, picking the right co-founder? In in picking co-founder, a lot of people choose what's in front of them. As humans, um, and we're going to zoom pretty big here for a second. Uh, as humans, we're very comfortable with our own circles itself, and so a lot of my friends happen to be engineers, and it's just like we're comfortable. You know, love to play board games together. Love to. My my group of, of friends and, and, and colleagues are, are a defined circle itself. And so when you look to find a co-founder, you generally want to have different skills. And to find different skills, you need to look outside of your comfort zone. Most people look within their comfort zone. And so that's why you have a lot of uh, similar skills in, in some founding teams. And what happens is that you, you come into disagreements over who's responsible for what. Because... In an early team, you need to have separation of skill. And I think there's a book called The Founder's Dilemma that goes into this, uh, written by a Harvard professor. And he, he did a study amongst, I think, I think it's like 2,000 founders and what was the main cause of breakup. And one of the reasons was separation of skill. People wanted to do another person's job or you didn't have the skill. And so you're like trying to find what, you know, what, what to do. And oh, you should do this. Well, I don't want to do that. And so, um, it's important to really think about what are the skills you need for the company that you want to build. Um, and then even beyond that, like for the company you want to build and what if it changes, how does the whole team react to that? And to have a very sober conversation about that because in the early stages of a company, a lot's going to change itself. And so that is a good analogy for people who are coworkers who've worked in, you know, in, in a team in different roles, 
right? You've, you've gone through this exercise of working on projects that are maybe scrapped or changed, and you're used to that skill and you're used to that communication itself. And so that's why they say coworkers make really good for co-founders itself, uh, coworkers in different skills, because you've gone through the gauntlet of you know, having tough conversations, uh, separating skills, prioritizing versus, uh, versus people who are not coworkers itself, people who are perhaps strangers. Yeah, I, I would say um, that the, the concept of, of co-founder dating is, is an elusive one because a co-founder, I mean, that, that's, that is a very high level of commitment. You are essentially getting married to that person. And like, unless you get, you know, a quick acquisition offer, you're essentially committing to building a company with this person for five to maybe 15 years. You know, that, that's a lot of time to spend with someone. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and to Andy's point, there are some very typical things that can derail a co-founder relationship, division of labor, obviously. Um, but I'll, another one is uh, maybe uh, uh, non-equitable uh, equity grants to, to co-founders. If one person's got 51% of the company and someone else has 17%, you know, um, that can lead to, to disputes. I think, you know, uh, hiring and the ability to hire is also one of the most important traits of, of a founder. And so uh, a founder who cannot recruit a co-founder uh, doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to recruit a VP of sales, you know, head of engineering. And so the, the first test of a founder in many ways is can you find that co-founder? Uh, if you've worked with them before and they're, they're a co-worker and you know how to work together, well, that's fantastic. And investors love that because there's synergy and there's trust already between the, the, the founding team. But in the absence of that, uh, you have to kind of strike gold. It's like the bachelorette, you know, finding somebody who's your soulmate, you know, in a, in a sort of speed dating scenario. Jose, so some people have asked me this, which is like, where do I look? Is there a meetup for co-founders and you know, soft plug for on deck itself in the fellowship? But how would you answer that? There, there isn't really. You know, there, there have been various efforts over the years to try to create that. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, you, you, you miss some of the fundamental problems, which is like, why is, why is somebody uh, there in the first place and not able to sort of find a, a, a co-collaborator? Uh, and I think you also are sort of running the, the gamut of, you know, finding people who have complementary skill sets, but also have complementary timing, complementary personalities, complementary, you know, uh, drives, work drives, what have you. Uh, and so finding all of these things in the right person at the right time in the exact right space, I think is very difficult, but, you know, I, I think places like universities, places like academy companies are natural environments for this to happen because people are connecting organically, collaborating organically on projects. Uh, but when you try to simulate that, I think you run into some of those issues of like, what are people's motivations in the first place? Why are they here? And like, why is this the special connection? I've helped a number of people find co-founders and, the most successful ones are approach it like a recruiting funnel. It sounds terrible, but you know they they, they dating have, or a- uh, <laughs> they, but yeah they 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 approach it like a recruiting funnel where you know you have a list of people that you want to go towards and you 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 meet them and you put them through a, 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 a an interview process itself. And I think there's this uh, link from uh, someone posted the essential questions to ask while co-founder dating. I think Gloria Lynn posted this. And it was very thoughtful. It basically chronicled her journey to finding a co-founder um, and the questions that she would ask itself. Um, I've heard of interesting techniques from other individuals where if they meet someone and they're trying to decide if they're going to work well together, they've shared each other's reviews from the company that they were previously at. And so they would read them to understand their strengths and weaknesses. Interesting, right? And But you know, if outside of that, up until today, there was really no way to kind of get a huge density of co-founders until OnDeck Fellowship came around. 
And and if you were designing a, you know, four week or 12 week program where people who were looking to find co-founders uh, were you know, spending time together, what principles might you instill to make sure to help people find the right match or from a, from a high level perspective, you know, help them navigate that experience? I would first and foremost focus on getting the right people in the room. Uh, that's really hard to do. I would I would argue that's like at least half of the the challenge, which is getting people who are in the right mindset, who have the right skills, uh, who have the right commitment as well. Uh, most people are trying to moonlight starting companies. I just don't think that's going to work. You know, starting a company is a very irrational idea, and people are crazy. And so you got to be committed to that. So once you get the right people, I think it's going to focus a lot on all the more kind of um, softer aspects of company building. How do you manage disagreements itself? How do you work in the team together? Um, how do you communicate clearly itself? And so I think a lot of what you find in, I hate to say it, but like marriage counseling, yeah. I think I think you'll see in a world-class co-founder, call it project. And because it's going to focus a lot on communication. It's going to focus a lot on how you resolve issues. Because once you have the skills, it's all about how you utilize those skills and you know, and get the teams to, to work together. And so uh, it would be crazy ideas like, I don't know, build a, a lamp together in you know a minute. It's just crazy ideas like that. Uh, sell lemonade, uh, you know, uh, instant lemonade on um, and see which team makes the most lemonade and sells the most lemonade, you know, from from a, a packet of uh, lemonade itself. Like things weird, things like that. But I think those those projects they're kind of like trust ball like ish exercises, but they they reveal a lot about our person. I think yeah. it's almost like the college environment recreated. Yeah, we talked. You talked a little bit about why founders break up because it's a separation of, of skill. What are reasons that founders co-founders break up that are fixable or, or preventable? But besides those, uh, let's talk about that, and then let's talk about hey, once you've decided that it's 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 best to separate, how, how to separate well. What what I've seen definitely is one co-founder is putting in a lot of work and doesn't feel like the other co-founder is either matching their level of work or their level of output. Uh, that can fester. Um, I think when a company is not doing as well, the, the cracks can, can appear more quickly. Uh, and conversely, like when a company is doing really well, that can sort of hide a lot of the dysfunction. You know, another one is, is going back to hiring. Like once these people have to start building out their teams and hopefully there's a division of labor, one is the, the technical, one is the, the business leader, and they'll have to hire people in their respective domains. Uh, and if, you know, one can and one can't, you know, that could lead to, to potential problems. Um, you know, I think, you know, certainly, um, lack of, of clarity around, uh, fundraising, lack of clarity around customers, you know, all that stuff can, can, can lead to issues down the line. You asked the question of how do you separate as founders? I wish there was an elegant way to talk about this. Having seen quite a few now, I would definitely, the one recommendation I would say is like, get outside counsel. Talk about the problems and, and find someone you trust that can mediate um, to help kind of dig through some of these meaty questions. And 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 the outcome could be, hey, this is just not going to work out. Or hopefully the outcome could be, hey, we haven't approached it this way. And you kind of helped us kind of discover this. And we're thankful for it. We're going to give it a shot. right? And I think founders try to, to see the founder unit as this closed nucleus where all those problems are and, and challenges and struggles are internally focused. And while that's generally true, I think it's important to have someone also kind of help come in and help, right? And, and, and evolve that relationship. And so I say, get, 
get counsel early. You know, there's a, there's a number of coaches that can help. There's um, help, help founders. And I think getting on that earlier on has been very helpful for, for companies. And, and there should be someone other than a board member is, is what I hear you saying. Um, and, you know, having, having experienced a, a situation where the board member was used as the mediator, that mediator can kind of end up choosing a side and then one co-founder ends up on the, on the short end. Yeah. I, I would highly recommend not having a board member as a mediator. Yeah. This is someone neutral, someone third party, someone who's an outsider to the, to the, the company itself, but um, who can help mediate those discussions itself. Yeah. So, so it was a, and you were at YC, you used hundreds of, of startups during that time. Jessica Livingston is famous for saying, I don't know if you said something like, you know, the biggest reason startups fail is co-founder breakup or, or some, some version of that. What did you learn from your experience at, at YC about the, the co-founder experience, what, what the great ones do well, uh, what, you know, some of the non-obvious founders should, should know about managing that relationship? I think it's um, it's a stress test of the relationship, uh, and so really knowing how these founders came together, knowing what they've worked on in the past, knowing what challenges they've faced together in the past, uh, and then some of the other things that are less obvious are like you know evidence of resilience and um, you know evidence of resilience from from both of the founders. You know what's what's uh, something that you've done that that's difficult that you're really proud of, and you know that could be something that's startup related. It could be something that that someone did in their you know teenage years, uh, but like. The, the sort of equal amount of resilience and level evidence of commitment from both founders is sort of like, um, you know, table stakes for a healthy co-founder dynamic. I mean, I think um, uh, going back to the equity split, you know, seeing more equitable uh, sharing of, of the, the, the option pool amongst founders is uh, correlated with higher outcomes in companies, uh, whereas the more skewed um, cap tables correlate to, to poorer outcomes. Another one would be, you know, what is sort of the, the, the founder problem fit? In terms of, you know, why is this founder or set of founders the right experts to solve this problem and what, you know, inside information or experience do they have that lead them to their unique insight? But, you know, there are definitely counterexamples of people who have come together on, on day one and built a great company. And so um, there, there is certainly no one rule to, to define them all. Is it pretty similar to relationships in that there's... Um... You know, sometimes it's opposites attract. Sometimes it's people who are you know just like each other. There's no sort of science to the right personality co-founder fit, and it's more about, I guess, the skills and 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 values alignment. Or how do you think about that? You know, I think that's probably fair to say. It's it's just such a mixed bag. I think one of the um, indicators uh, that that is sort of an, uh, a tell early on is like, do the founders like talk over each other? Do they have respect for one another? Do they sort of understand each other's rhythm rhythm and let themselves uh, finish and can they pitch well as a team? And again, correlation uh, between you know positive and negative for uh, those who do or don't. Yeah, I was going to ask when, when do you look at a team and say ah they're probably not going to make it? And it, it's what you're, what you're sort of getting at at that idea is I feel like con- people have contempt for other when they don't let them finish or when they sort of roll their eyes. And that's that's actually I think what John Gottman, the relationship coach, uh, says that that's sort of the one of the deadliest thing in, in a romantic relationship as well. Oh yeah, resentment. Uh, yeah. You, crossing that bridge is is hard to get back over. Yeah, totally. It is funny. I mean, there is sort of a one-to-one, it seems, sort of, you know, similarity between co-founder relationships and romantic relationships, except for, of course, the romantic chemistry portion of the thing. Is there anything else that's radically different, you'd say, or or not helpful in terms of, you know, transporting ideas? The one that one idea I have is that you have to change and evolve over the course of the company, right? And what works at the early stages is not necessarily what's going to work, you know, to, to double revenue or to go get a growth round. And so um, both founders or all three founders or whatever number you have 
have to be willing to change and have to be capable of changing at a reasonably similar clip. Yeah. And what do you advise? There's often this, uh, the one founder who doesn't make it, who doesn't scale with the company is, is that if you, if someone has a sense of that early on, is that okay? What, what, what do you advise, uh, co-founders who are going through that, that experience for, for how to do that? Well, when, when you get a sense, Hey, this person's going to be good for, from zero to one, but not from one to a hundred. And thus, you know, I'll probably have them for a year and maybe the transition. Well, if, if you don't try to help give the tools necessary for this person to succeed, then, then what kind of commitment is that? Yeah. Right. And so we're all babies at one point in time. You know, we all come into this earth with very little skills and then we're built up over time. And it's it's really about the rate of learning and, and the willingness to learn as well too and the tools to learn. And so um I think it's 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 crazy to say on day one that a person needs to be, you know, use this as an example, an IPO ready CEO. Like that's just you know, very rarely that's gonna happen. But you can learn those skills along the way. And so if someone on the team, it's identified early on, whether it's you know the, the CEO or another member of the team, it's important to surround that person with all the skills and resources necessary for them to grow because it's, it's important for the company because the company, if they're going to be successful, they're going to change. Yeah. The company is going to grow and it's imperative on the team to grow the team internally. I think this this is this is well documented about um, Alibaba in early days, right? The early team, I think it was uh, it was a very experienced team under Jack itself, and over time they, the entire team grew because Jack invested in, in those relationships. They had a lot of trust, and he brought in a lot of experts to help them along the way. And I think to this day, a lot of those individuals still are at the company. Yeah. Do you have a framework for thinking about how you know someone should determine whether this person is a late co-founder versus a first employee versus founding team and how to think about that? I mean, the obvious stuff is like, what have they done in their career and what's on their resume? And, you know, what do they gravitate toward and what do they sort of profess to enjoy the most? Uh, you know, the, those are all sort of, um, you know, leading indicators. But, you know, beyond that, I think um, follow that GH smart method and really try to solve for the problems that are at hand. And you will look for competencies that are related to those outcomes. And, uh, you know, somebody who has, uh, been a CFO and an audit chair on a, a startup and gone through IPO, well, can speak directly to that experience as opposed to, you know, somebody who studied finance and has been in a couple of startups and, you know, has, has seen the early stages, but have never really been through that, that mature stage. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the you, horses for courses is the cliche. You want to, you want to find the, uh, the horse who can, can race on the course that you have. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes you have to dig for it. Let, let's get into building uh, early teams. Maybe we'll start broad and then we'll, we'll narrow in. Uh, Jose, you, you, again, you, you spent time at YC, hundreds of companies build early teams. What are the, the most common mistakes you, you see founders make or the most non-obvious things that, that you keep telling your founders or, or what separates the ones who, who do it great from the ones, ones who don't? Oh gosh. Um, so there, there are different schools of thought here. The, the one school of thought that I think is, is the, the sort of best practice is like, your early team, uh, your, your, you know, first 10 employees, that's your Navy SEAL team. Those are the people who are, you know, multi-tool athletes who are low ego, who are high output, who are, you know, high, high, uh, high collaborators who are, who are there to crush it and, and really sort of thrive on that as opposed to, um, the other school of thought, which is like, you know, at the earliest, earliest stage, uh, you need to hire whoever you can get. And like, you know, if you are a seed, seed stage startup, you're not going to be able to attract, you know, top executives out of, out of, you know, late stage companies or, or, or public companies, um, and that you should sort of go where the, the market leads you. 
Uh, and I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think that every company has a different attractability, you know, quotient, so to speak. Uh, and like, if you are a proven expert in the space, you can probably recruit other proven experts in the space to your company, even if it's early stage. If you are an unproven founder with an idea in a new category, you're going to have to do a lot more selling and you're probably going to have to hire people who are less credentialed uh, than you might hope. I'm, I'm struggling to answer this because it's absolutely crazy in the beginning of a company and every company is a snowflake, right? If they're all unique in, in how they approach it. And so um, there's so many problems that come up along the way <laughs> and um, having trouble like picking them out. Uh, I think that's what Jose mentioned is a good framework, but there's probably, you know, two, three, four dozen more on top of that itself. So what's the common, most common mistake? You're going to make mistakes. It's the most common thing. And the question is like, how do you recover from that? Do you have good advisors around you? You know, investors can provide some of that counsel itself, but independent advisors itself, uh, people who are who have been your mentors in the past, building a company is not one that you can will your way without help and do. You know, great companies are built by really good advisors um, around you. In addition to the the sheer effort, and then you know a lot of luck as well too, and, and, and some capital involved. But I would encourage every founder to get, um, in addition to their board of directors, a board of advisors, mm. people who are outside of your board, who maybe give a little bit of equity, um, but you spend time with them outside of your board and you share the things that, um, you know, that uh, you may not disclose to the board or maybe it's not relevant itself, uh, but other media challenges itself. And, and I certainly encourage that. And if I look at some great founders, uh, even at the earlier stages, um, and all the way through the late stages, they they have their board of advisors, and um, some of the founders have found them very, 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 very valuable. I've, I've definitely seen um, the the hiring too senior too soon and the hiring too senior too late uh, versions of making mistakes. Um, the too soon can really derail the company, uh, especially if you get somebody who's not acclimated to that early stage and starts trying to do big company things in the small company setting. Uh, but too late can also be very dangerous where you've hired a bunch of doers and you're really great at cranking out code, but you don't know necessarily what you should be building and you can't necessarily forecast how long it's going to take you to build. And so, um, you know, Finding the, uh, the, the sort of Goldilocks zone, to Andy's point, is, is a very individual and unique calculus for every company. Yeah. On that, I think Keith Roy has a framework of, of, of asking, is this a value creation role or a value maintenance role? Uh, and if it's a value creation role, uh, you want to take someone who has super high slope, who's more risky, perhaps, who hasn't, who hasn't done it before. And if it's a value maintenance role, uh, perhaps like a finance person or, some, or something, you want to make sure you have the seasoned, uh, seasoned expert. Do you, does that framework resonate for you or how do you think about it? Uh, someone came up with this framework. I think it's actually Jason Lorenz, who is uh, currently the head of talent at Aurora. Um, you know, he, he came up with the phase of every company has what's called a, uh, a storming, uh, sorry, exploring, storming, and norming. Mm-hmm. Kind of forming, storming, norming, and performing. There, there you go. That's, that's what mm-hmm. it is. Um, and each company has this different phase and you need a separate team for it itself. Um, and so I think that follows a little bit of Keith's kind of observations around yeah. phases of the company and the people that you need for those itself. Another another cliche I've heard is, is pirates and Navy. Sometimes you need pirates and sometimes you need a Navy. Totally. And Navy people don't want to be on a pirate ship and vice versa. Yeah. 
Let me say, talk more about the forming, norming. <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Uh, it's forming, storming, norming, and performing. Okay. Can you, so, can you so unpack it? Form, forming is like you've got this kernel of an idea, and you have to sell people on this idea and its potential. And there's not a lot of evidence that the potential could exist. Yeah. And so that attracts people who are an idealist who want to, to form something and be part of this formative stage. Storming is like, okay, you've got some traction. Now you need to fulfill this demand for customers. Yeah. Now you need to figure out how to go on high velocity across all vectors. Uh, norming is like, okay, now you've got some market share. You might even be the, the leader in your market. Now you need to standardize. Now you need to figure out how to reduce variables in delivery and reduce variables in quality. And so you're, you're, you're setting up all these sort of controls and protocols. And then performing is like, you know, you're a market leader and you're either trying to maintain or like, you know, slightly improve your, your position in the market. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the, the, the sort of insight is that, you know, people who thrive in each of these settings are, are different and are motivated and wired differently. And so, you know, seeking, seeking the, the right people out at the right stage is, is sort of what you're trying to do. As the company scales, how, how do you think about the, the, what's your framework for thinking about promoting people from within the company from bringing people externally? When's the right time to do either of those or, or what, what's the framework for thinking about it? So the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? You have to do both. You have, you have to provide an upward mobility for your internal employees to get them to be engaged and to sort of see their future with the company. At the same time, like sometimes you need specific expertise. I use the example of an audit chair. If you haven't been an audit chair before, like that's a lot to ramp up on in your first role. And so you have to be able to do both. Um, and hiring externally is risky. You may alienate people in the company uh, while you're up-leveling the, the skill in the company. Uh, and then promoting someone internally is risky. Perhaps you uh, this person crashes and burns and you've just prolonged the starting point for your executive search by another six months. And so, um, you know, again, uh, you know, no one size fits all here. But I think, um, you know, you, you don't... You can't expect someone to jump several levels at once, right? If they're managing a 10-person team and now you want them to go and manage, you know, three teams of 10 through one layer, that's a big jump in responsibility. You know, maybe there's a, a shade of gray in the middle that you can hit before going going all the way there. But you, you want to hire high potential people. You want to try to reward them, but you also have to do what's right for the company. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if anyone has a framework out there. There's so many different variables that you need to account for in making that decision from... You know, what kind of hires you're bringing on, what the product is, what the market's like in regards to hiring itself, capital you have, timeline that you have, the brand of the company. So so there's a lot of different things that go into making that decision. And and like Jose mentioned, it's just so unique for every company. But I, I'd be curious. And, and so if anyone out there is is has a good framework, uh, please send it in because I'd love to read it. You know, Eric would love to read it. Jose would love to read it. All the readers would love to read it because... It's definitely a problem that every company has to go through. I would say the outcome of like the, 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 the talent that goes comes in as a senior software engineer and then becomes a manager and then director and then a VP and then a CTO. Like that's so rare. That is like the top 1% of people that actually that happens to. And so, you know, you may get that person and you should clear the promotion path for them to become an executive in your company. But like statistically speaking, you you're probably not, you probably don't have that person internally. And so, you know, every company that matters, like has gone out and hired executives externally at some point and it's uncomfortable and there are a million things that can go wrong, but if you can't do that, you can't grow your company. And so like you, you absolutely ha can't ignore the internal population, but you know, there comes a point and hopefully your company is lucky enough to get to the point where you really do need that expert. And there's no, there's no replacement for that expertise. I can't think of a single company that is 100% internally promoted. Okay. I, I, 
I'm curious to hear more about the concrete differences between you know the first 10, 20, 30 employees, and and then as you scale up in terms of how how you approach hiring. So you know one one question, but if you have other concrete differences, I want to hear them. You know, when are you more on the side of hire fast, fire fast, or you know the opposite of that, hire, hire you know much slower? And how does that change as as you evolve? I think for the for the first ten employees, um, you really can't do hire fast, hire fast because they're so impactful. You know, it, it'll take a long time to unwind any negative impacts that somebody's had. I think that much like executive search, you need to approach those first ten hires uh, very deliberately and with a lot of referencing, a lot of back channel. Uh, and if you can get these people through a trusted network where, you know, somebody that you think highly of thinks highly of them even better, but you know, oftentimes that's not the case. Um, you know, I think that you also are finding people who are willing to take less in salary at that stage and are going to be more wired to take equity. And so like, that's a, a sort of, you know, self-select out for a lot of people right there. You know, if you are not willing to, to sort of come in, you know, under the, uh, you know, industry average salary mark while being, you know, employee, sub-employee 10 of the company, you're, you're doing it wrong. You're, you're looking for the wrong thing. I think that's very telling, by the way. And, and I've, I've had founders push back and be like, I got to give this person this crazy salary for the first or second or third, fourth hire. I'm like, yeah, but pushing back on that individual in regards to the compensation piece tells you so much about their commitment to the company. It's a very tough decision to make, but I think the the good founders realized the right decision, which is you got to get people who are bought into the company, who will be there for the long term, who are not there for the comp, you know, outside of what is necessary itself. Like we live in an expensive area here in the Bay Area, but but you got to get people who are committed to building this at almost through all the ups and downs itself. And I think comp is an interesting way in the early days of doing that. When you're, when you're much larger, it's a, it's a very different discussion itself. But in the early days, like Jose said, you got to take your time. Uh, you got to really spend the time to minimize those bad hires because they're very, very tough for the company to, to, to recover from and to really test you know, the commitment of these individuals. And I think a part of that comes in the form of comp where if the company does well, you're rewarded very well through equity. And that's that's a very, very important point. I think hire fast, fire fast can work at the storming stage where you're trying to hire 25 sales reps or customer service agents, and you need to sort of um, you know err on the side of velocity. But in the first 10 employees of the company, chances are those are not salespeople. Chances are that's technical staff. And I think um, you know you, you just have to be a little bit more deliberate with uh, with those hires. And the cliche goes: A players hire A players, and B players hire C players. Yeah. Say say more about the comp because there's you know some people said I think Sam Altman said that um, employees should get much more equity than they do. We see founders get you know 50x you know more, more the the upside that their their first employees do, and and sometimes it's not even that de risk since since they joined. What, what's your approach to you know first time employee play comp? I I'm, I'm inclined to agree with what Sam said in that, you know, anybody who's coming in as employee number five, employee number seven, they're essentially taking a similar level of risk to the founder and they have a fraction of the amount of equity. Uh, and of course they're going to have, you know, multiples more than people who come in as employee 25 or 50. Uh, but you know, people who are coming in at that stage aren't taking the same level of risk and it's sort of a, you know, a, a mutual faith. The founder has faith in the individual to perform in this sort of ambiguous setting. And then the individual has faith in that the founder is going to build a prosperous company and, and you know, manage the team uh, effectively. And so, um, you know, you can't really know until you get in there. A few people have, have mentioned this who were employee number one at companies and they would said they would probably wouldn't do it again because of the equity disparity. 
but they would do it again because of the learnings. Because you, you go in and you learn so much. You know, the, the return on learning is astronomical. Um, the equity is tough. And I, and I actually sympathize because founders do take, the, the people who are first there, take an inordinate amount of risk. Um, and, and I think it's gone a little bit out of whack because the disparity is so different between the founders and the first employee. But I do believe there should be a, a fair amount of distance between the two because uh, founders, again, at the end of the day, if the company doesn't work out, it's like it's really on the early team and the founding team to carry that weight. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's a subtle difference, but it's a very, very important difference. Founders pave the ways. Here's an example, actually, of a, of a gray area, uh, and this is actually a village global company that I'm working with. Founders been at it for a year. It's significant traction. Uh, they're trying to bring in someone fairly senior, and they're working with me to find this person. This person is an executive-level person that they're bringing in, uh, and they have a very clear idea of what they want them to do, but this founder is not regarding this person as a co-founder. Like they've been at it for a year, they've got traction. He feels like there's too much progress to to assign that co-founder label to someone else coming in. This person may end up getting single-digit equity, you know, percentage points in the company, uh, but will not be considered a co-founder. Like, should this person be considered a co-founder if they come in as the most credible and experienced person in the company? But some may say yes, some may say no. What do you say? I think it's pretty close yeah. to a co-founder, especially if you are pre-institutional funding, uh, and especially if this person is going to add credibility to enable you to obtain institutional funding. I think you got to kind of consider that. Yeah, it's funny. I saw a, a similar situation, but almost reversed, where the founder had made no progress on the product or the customer, but had raised $3 million. And you know, a month ago, or a month before raising, was thinking about equal co-founder, and then after three million, was thinking you know more like one to two percent. I'm like, besides raising money, and you already knew that a month ago, they said they would invest. Now you've got the money in the bank, but you haven't de-risked anything else. Yeah, he he wise. He ended up giving ten percent, which is closer, but um, and 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 they came on board. Let's. Uh, I want to talk about comp more more broadly because it's, it's a very complicated topic. Uh, well, actually, first, do you, do you benchmark for option pools or, or first employee or things that founders should be thinking about that you want to see or recommend? So different, right? Two co-founders, six co-founders, one co-founder, like that, that option pool is already, you know, like light years different, right? Uh, how many people do you need to hire? Like, what do you need to prove before you can get your, your first round of funding? Like all of these variables will affect kind of how you have to think about that. Yeah. So no, no set the first 10 employees should take X amount of equity or? I, I, I don't think that there's one case that would apply across the board. I've seen, there, here's one good example, uh, or one example, and uh, time will tell if it's a good example. But uh, if you're bringing a lot of hires, so let's just say your first five hires you're going to bring, and this is the, these are the hires that you're going to get to your first round of funding itself. If you're going to bring them in within a short period of time, and the rules are all going to be fairly ambiguous, but some specialized, but you know, broadly speaking, Maybe you should give them all the same equity. If the first hire to the fifth hire is going to be a distance of a year, then maybe you should kind of incentivize and reward the people who came in very early when it was really risky with a little bit more equity and you kind of scale down. There's a lot of different frameworks out there. I think it, it's good, again, to you can hear me say this, like think about the first principles. What are you trying to optimize for? What are the constraints that you have? And then work back from the, backward from that. What I've seen, the mentality that I've encountered a lot in the market from founders is like the equity offer should be as little as we can get away with, right? Uh, and if the candidate doesn't know what they're doing, that means give them 5,000 shares. 5,000 is a lot. And like hope that they accept it. Um, and, and, and I think that um, that breaks down really quickly. Uh, and it's also um, 
leads to problems down the line when you're looking at uh, your sort of, you know, overall company compensation scenario and trying to find, you know, patterns and levels and, and fairness. It's a lot of mess to clean up. There, there, are, there are times in meetings where I'm meeting an early stage company and I would just ask outright to the founding team, so what's the equity split? And it's very interesting to see how, how they answer that question, how they react to that question. You know, sometimes they start looking at each other going like, oh, you know, then you kind of know. Maybe they haven't discussed it or maybe someone's uncomfortable with it. The great teams are just like, this is what it is. And they're, they're all in agreement. This is what it should be. That's when you know it's a very healthy relationship itself. And, and Michael uh, Seibel said it should be 50% if you sort of started around a similar spot. or uh, do, you, do you sympathize with that or think it should be different? I think it's, I mean, unless there's some extenuating circumstance where somebody is clearly the 70% and other person's clearly the 30%, I, I think if you're embarking upon a, you know, a very risky and long-term mission with someone that you want to start that relationship off in the first place. And so, you know, certainly as I'm thinking about the early stages of my company, that's a principle that I'm trying to adhere to. Yeah. yeah I, I like asking uh, the question, Andy, what, what's equity split? I also like to look the founder in the eye and ask, what's your net worth? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes it is helpful to know uh, how long they can la- bootstrap the, the company, but it's yeah. always an awkward. Uh, As the net worth goes up, the willingness to answer goes up. <laughs> the Mike Bloomberg method. Yes, <laughs> totally. Let's talk about comp uh, philosophy uh, more broadly. Uh, it's a thing that you know founders don't intuitively understand, especially as the, as the company scales. What, what do you find? Uh, you know, advice you're you're giving giving founders. What mistakes do they make, or non obvious things do they not fully appreciate? You have to be deliberate, right? Are you where relative to market are you trying to compensate? Like Uber famously was offering people 75% of market for a long time when they were flying really high, and it was sort of a gut check, right? Do you believe in the equity enough to take uh, under market salary, even for a company with a lot of resources? Uh, conversely, you know, Netflix, for instance, um, decided they wanted to compensate very aggressively, uh, and that led to them being to be more selective in their hiring, and it led to them having this fantastic talent brand. And so uh, I would just say you have to kind of know what your story is and where, where you want to be. Uh, and then that has to be able to then scale across 100 employees, 1,000 employees, and not break down. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there are organizations that spend all their time on this, which is comp philosophy. And, and every company's philosophy is different because there's a lot of different factors in regards to where they want to comp at and how they want to comp itself, um, whether it's all cash with a bonus, uh, equity, or, or entirely equity or entirely cash itself. It also depends on what the market conditions are like in regards to the, the recruiting market. Right now, we're in a very competitive market. And so you see companies having to compensate on, on the higher end. Or if they don't decide to do that, the recruiting uh, percentage of successful recruiting candidates is going to go down a lot. right? So are you okay with that itself? Are you okay with having uh, more rejections in the market or less rejections in the market? And it's a, it's a very dynamic discussion, which is why um, there are some really, really good people out there that do this. There's a former recruiting leader from Stripe who would tell me that um, you know, they don't want to be closing 90% of their offers. If they're closing 90% of their offers, they're offering too much. And like the, 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 the truth and the sort of market evidence for it um, is somewhere below that. And like, you know, I don't know, work, having worked at Google, Google doesn't close 100% of their offers. They have a percentage that they shoot for, uh, and that's adjusted year by year. Yeah. What, what's the percentage should, should you be hitting? I think anywhere between, I think 75% is like where I would like to hit. Uh, but, you know, for an early stage startup, anywhere between 50 and 75%, I think is, is pretty good. I think that there's also a big variable here in terms of when you release the offer. Like, I got this from Dan Portillo. 
a lot of companies make offers when they're ready to make offers as opposed to when the candidate is ready to receive the offer. And managing that last bit can be the difference between closing 75%, 100%, 50% of your offers, just extending or not extending based on your faith that that candidate will convert and accept the offer. Well, well, you mentioned Dan Pertillo, uh, formerly Greylock, now of Sweat Equity. Are there any other uh, immediate lessons that come to mind in terms of what you've picked up from him along the way? He's he's full of great stuff. I mean, I think um, just the, the the very notion of Sweat Equity that you know talent can be this differentiator that uh, that ultimately you know you, you you can invest in and actually use your your shares for. You know that that's kind of a, a concept that not a lot of other people would have gravitated toward. Yeah. And so I think he's moved the market in a positive direction with Sweat Equity. Totally. Um, we'll we'll, we'll come, come back to that a bit. Zach Kanner had this tweet: Startup comp is simple. Either become the best of the world at identifying mispriced assets. Or convince incredible people to work for less, or pay top of market, uh, or build a mediocre team. And everyone thinks they're doing the first or second. Nearly everyone is doing the third or, or fourth. Does, does that resonate with you guys? Very provocative statement. I mean, you know, I, I think that there's always, um, you know, uh, there's a spectrum, and there there are people who are going to uh, fall right into that that stereotype, and there are going to be people who who buck the trend. Yeah. And um, you know, I think. Uh, Nobody will say like we're not trying to hire great people, but the proof is in the pudding. You know, I think there there are some companies like I'll use Brex as an example, right? That the type of people that they've brought on at such an early stage is clear evidence uh, that they are committed to hiring great people, and so like nothing speaks louder than that. Yeah, uh, Andy, when we talk about uh, hiring the first person in talent, uh, what what to look for, how to interview for it. So. Jose is a good example because he was at uh, Google at the time, and then I recruited him to a company called Nebula at the time. And uh, you know, Jose, Jose's story is actually quite unique. Um, you know, he he didn't come from recruiting. No one really comes from recruiting. <laughs> you don't you know seek the yeah a recruiter. In the early days of a company, when you're hiring that first head of talent or anyone in recruiting. It's such an ambiguous role. Just like you would hire for the first employees, you got to have someone with that grit. Uh, you got to have someone with that hustle um, who understands what an excellent candidate looks like, where they've had reps, uh, where they understand the entire recruiting process from sourcing candidate to managing the candidate to closing the candidate. Um, and really important for the early parts of a company because you're going to be scaling that engine, you, know, you need to know how to build that engine as well too. And so you can kind of intuitively figure it out or if you have good advisors. But if you've done it in the past, it's also very good. Um, Jose, you know, you, you worked in a big engine of Google itself, um, but you had the intuition because you also came from an agency prior to that, the intuition to build that engine in-house. And that worked out really well. Yeah. I would say the the most wrong thing you can do is hire somebody who's been at Google for two years and then Facebook for three years and then bring them into your early stage startup thinking that they're going to match their performance at one of these big companies because it's so different. And you have to you have to have resilience and grit. You have to have humility. You know, sometimes the work is is, you know, uh, tactical and not strategic. Uh, you have to be an optimist. You have to be able to sell people. Uh, you have to be persuasive. You have to be able to influence you, your internal stakeholders. Uh, and one of the things that I really look for is learning velocity and sort of like how curious is this person. And I test that by asking, you know, what do you do outside of work to get better at your job? 
And like a lot of junior people don't have a good answer to that question, but like the people who do have a good answer, they light up and they say, well, I read these books and I, I built work on my network and I, you know, I do this and that, and this is how I try to get better. And like, that's, that's the person that I want to bet on in an early stage company somebody who's going to work to make themselves better at their job and who is not going to take no for an answer and who does not like being uninformed about something who's going to work to find the answer. Uh, and you know, I, I think that the, the, the work ethics is an important part of it, but, but curiosity is, is really essential. Yeah. And, and I think that that's struggle is so important if you if you're a recruiter at a at a very good company that has a very good brand and you send you know you reach out to 10 candidates chances are nine to ten of them are going to respond great company right now find me a recruiter that can do that but with a company that has no brand and that person is very clever and has figured out how to recruit for a company that is unknown yet and that's just, it's just so hard to do that. Um, a lot of people gravitate towards these brand name recruiters or people that, who are recruiting at these brand name companies, but the reality is like they haven't struggled yet, right? They haven't struggled to, to recruit candidates. They haven't had to, to compete with, with a 50% you know, percentile offer because they've been giving offers at the 75th and 90th percentile. Like they were offering, you know, they were giving caviar and, and selling caviar, and you have this other recruiter who's selling, you know, a hamburger and a hot dog that's like yeah. kind of cold. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if that person can sell that well, then you have someone very special. And you got to find that struggle. I, I would also say go right at them and ask about their experience sourcing. Uh, somebody who has done a lot of sourcing um, will light up when when asked about it, and will share their their techniques and tricks, and will tell you about the best person that they sourced. And people who are reluctant to do it will say. You know, well, you know, I'm really trying to leverage other parts of my skill set or, or what have you, like red flags for that in an early stage setting. And so, what do the people who are able to uh, sell the cold the cold hot dog or able to recruit at, at the whole cold hot dog company? What do they do exceptionally well? I mean, it's, it's easier to recruit once you once you're at Facebook or Google, you build a process and 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 watch them come. But what separates the ones who can do it well at the no brand companies from, from those who can't? I, I think this is the art and the science, right? Um, here's the art. The art is can you uh, can you identify the big picture story and then can you synthesize it into a form that the candidate can grasp? Also, like, are you selling to the points that are appropriate to the candidate, right? If you're talking about this great work-life balance and you have a candidate who wants to come in and grind 24-7, you know, that's not going to be a relevant selling point. And so knowing that candidate and knowing what their motivators and triggers are and being able to sell toward those, you know, I think is is what you want to do. Um, but that is sort of more advanced recruiting. You, you can't have somebody junior doing all that. I think in in general, this framework applies where you know anyone who works at a company, they work there because of kind of three things. And the first two are far more important than the third. In fact, the third is a pretty pretty distant kind of uh, quality. Um, but it's who you work with, what do you do, and where's the financial outcome itself? Like, what are you going to get paid, and who are the backers itself? But again, that's the least important really important is like what is the work you're going to do and what impact is that going to have upon the world um and and who do you work with and and are these people that you can see yourself spending a lot of time with um day in and day out and if you can communicate those two things in 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 that first reach out i think you're doing really well you're going to bat you know higher than anyone any other person and I think a lot of recruiters don't focus on those, those values of people and, and work and what they do. But if you do that, I think you're going to do really well. 
I'm going to go back to comp for a second. How do you think about the different models of equity in terms of should uh, should you know, people get the same versus early hires get more versus what happens when someone has a cash need like mortgage or childcare and how do you reconcile that in equity? I mean, I, th- I think you want to stick to your plan as much as possible. And, you know, if there are going to be exceptions always, but, you know, you're, you're setting precedent with exceptions, right? And is it a precedent that you can tolerate and that you can go back to and revisit and feel good about in the future is what you kind of have to ask yourself. And, um, you know, there are, every candidate has financial need of, of some kind, right? And so uh, at some point it becomes less about what that individual candidate needs and more about what the company can provide and wants to be on record for as, as providing going, going into the future. Yeah. I, I just went through this, uh, this last week actually, and, uh, a company was trying to give, was giving an offer to a candidate and a candidate wanted, uh, quite a bit more like a 25 or 40% higher kind of cash component because what they were leaving, uh, was a lot higher and we were trying to reconcile. And because the company is very early, you know, people who, who I introduced them to who are advisors, a lot of the recruiters like, Get the person on board as, 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 cause the, the risk of getting someone, of, of, of not getting that person on board is pretty high. And all the people who come from an HR background are like, you gotta stick to the comp plan, cause if you break that right now, you're not gonna have discipline. Um, the clever workaround was to give the sign on bonus itself, um, to, to, to buffer that first year, um, while sticking to the comp plan. So there's, there's, there is a compromise and, and a way to kind of work. Uh, given your situation itself, and that worked in this case. Not to say it's not to say that it'll always work, but he consulted with a, a number of advisors. He got their feedback and came up with, a, I think, a pretty clever approach. Actually, the reality is also there. There are some people who are of disproportionate value to the company, right? And sometimes you need to do what you can to get those people on board. You know, if you are a computer vision company and you're interviewing a computer vision expert, and that computer vision expert needs 100k for their mortgage, then you know maybe you try to figure out a creative solution like like Andy just talked about, as opposed to you know you need a manual QA tester. Uh, you know that person's not getting 100k sign-on bonus. Yeah. Talk about the difference between head of people versus head of talent versus recruiting versus HR. And then maybe let's talk about the relationship. How do you make sure that HR and recruiting uh, work well and when do they split, et cetera? Yeah. Head of people is a relatively new term. Like I started seeing that maybe about five years ago. Uh, I also see head of people ops as sort of a, you know, interchangeable synonym. Head of talent is, is distinctly referring to talent acquisition uh, and recruiting um, and very, very, I mean, you, you hear talent, you hear recruiting. Uh, I think those those are pretty much synonyms. Uh, but people ops and HR is a much broader discipline and umbrella where you have everything from compensation to compliance. You have uh, benefits administration. You have performance management. Uh, and you have all these sort of different disciplines that come together. And yes, talent acquisition is horizontal across the company. But ultimately, those people that you hire need to go into the system. They need to go into the HRIS. And whatever compensation package you negotiated for them coming in now needs to stick with them and also needs to job to some extent with the other employees in the company because people talk. And so... Um, you know, I think recruiting by, and I, it hurts me to say this because I'm a recruiter, but recruiting by nature is a subdiscipline of HR. And in every instance, except for just a few that I can think of, whenever a company has tried to put a talent acquisition person in charge of the whole people ops function, it blows up. And there are a handful of people who buck that trend, but by and large, there's a reason that companies follow this pattern. I'm pretty sure someone's going to cause a, a Twitter storm over that, actually. <laughs> it's a very controversial statement coming from someone who... Uh, grew up in recruiting. 
Yeah, it, it's true. What I will also say is that the great people leaders are few and far between. Uh, and like me personally, you know, if I was the head of recruiting, choosing a company to go to, what I would be looking for is, is this HR leader, is this people leader, someone who is focused on what the company can do? Or is this person focused on what the employees in the company can't do? And uh, the, the former is a far more positive person to work under. Uh, unfortunately, the latter, I think, comprises the majority of the market for HR executives. Yeah. Just while we're in the spirit of stirring controversy, are there any disagreements that you think you two have or different approaches or um, different schools of thought in, in recruiting? And if, if not you specifically, I'm, I'm curious, where in the recruiting space in general are the big debates uh, happening? What are the either different schools on, on certain ideas or, or things that we're still figuring out as a space? Maybe new grad hiring. What do you mean by that? Like you have a very, very specific perspective on new grad hiring. And I would, I would bet that you are of the mind that a new grad could come in and start making impact right away. I feel like that's, um, you know, a very small percentage of, of the new grad population and that most will require a great deal of handholding and that companies, especially early stage companies, don't usually have the operational wherewithal and, and overhead to handle that. I would, uh, I would actually agree with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to say it, but I, I agree with you a lot of times. You know, yeah. uh, that's why I like you. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> I, it, it's in in regards to new grad hiring. It's just it. Uh, my my belief from that stems from. Uh, you know, people have so much access to information right now. And so, you know, 20 years ago, going into your first job, all the data that you had, all the learnings that you had were from university and like the, the life that you kind of lived up until then. Now you have so much available online, so much, you know, so many courses. You got Wikipedia, you got Coursera, you got Udacity, you've got N number of kind of resources. And so coming out of college, you're, you're actually pretty well prepared to do a lot of different things. It's not to say that you can jump into a very senior role very quickly. That's very rare. But I think the the bar has has really risen in regards to new grads, and they're just capable of so much more. And that's just my 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 theory around that. Um, and it's worked out for a number of companies. But you know, in in using an example of of Netflix, when they were going from de- delivering DVDs to streaming, they had to get people who were experts in streaming. The streaming paradigm wasn't even taught in college at the time, right? So they had to go out to experts from other industries to get that inside. And so again, it also, it really depends upon what you're trying to hire for and optimize for. Yeah. You see that in crypto a lot as well. One, one, one area that may be somewhat uh, of a debate in the, uh, in the space is automation of recruiting and to what extent you can buy a tool or a service or build a tool or a service that can automate, you know, some portion of the very manual uh, effort of recruiting. Uh, personally, I, I feel like there hasn't been a tool invented yet that can automate any significant. So there's not a portion. robot called Jose Gordado here that can. I'm working on it. <laughs> that, that's what the new company is about. Uh, but unfortunately, I have not seen one yet in the market. Um, and I've seen companies that solve one portion of the value chain, but by and large, um, you still need a, a human to sort of manage all the the loose ends in a recruiting process. Um, and I, I know that there are a lot of very smart entrepreneurs working to change that. Uh, but today, I, I still have not seen anything that replaces a, a human with good judgment. So in, in 50 years, you don't think it's going to be replaced? You know, recruiters are not going to be there? I wouldn't say that. And I, I see a lot of interesting things around 
CRM, but they call it TRM, like talent relationship management. GEM is a good example. Beamery is a good example uh, where you're thinking about your candidate population as customers and you're doing drip campaigns and nurturing them uh, as opposed to just trying to transact with them. And so I think that that's interesting stuff and I think it can provide a lot of leverage to a sourcer. Uh, but the sourcer still has to come up with the content and engage the candidate on the phone and get them through the process. And so, um, you know, the, the sort of end to end of recruiting, it's like, you know, first, you know, research all the way to closed offer. And like, that's what you hire an executive search firm for is like to help you scope the role, you know, kick off sourcing and ultimately close the candidate. Uh, or you can go to the beginning and just say, hey, I'm going to use just LinkedIn recruiter for my sourcing. Or you can say, you know, go even even uh, earlier than that and say, I'm just going to use Intello and like let Intello automate the, the script for me. But that is just one portion of the, the overall solution. Dang it. I, I, I agree with you there. <laughs> can't, can't find a disagreement. Um, I guess the analogy is like, you know, in, in the automation of, of the workforce, you have robots itself and some parts of that will be automated away, but you got to have someone to, to run robots and to program and train it. Same as in recruiting. So I guess we're going to be robots. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to name uh, an element of, of the recruiting process and then get your quick uh, mental model or, or, or framework for, for how to think about it in perhaps a non-obvious way. Uh, how, how about sourcing, building a, a sourcing organization? We mentioned you know, it's not just LinkedIn, especially if you're not this hot company. You're, you're early, you're, you're starting, maybe you've raised some money. How, sh- how should companies be, be thinking about that? Uh, I actually heard this from Tito Carrero, who's the, um, the head of product and engineering at Segment, uh, but he was a longtime executive at Dropbox. And what he really espoused was the commitment to building out an internal sourcing team and to try to get that to comprise 30% of the overall candidate pipeline. Um, it's hard. You have to hire a lot of people. You have to set up processes and you have to hold people to those performance standards in order to be able to do it. But what they were shooting for is one third coming through sourcing, one third coming through uh, referral, and then one third coming through other, which could be, you know, the, the website. It could be people, uh, you know, who they meet at conferences or things like that. But sourcing being such an integral part that uh, like a vast portion of company resources need to be dedicated toward it. And I think every company has to contend with that at some point. Um, what Google did in you know 2010 2011 was hire a deco or manpower to bring them you know 2,000 sourcers every six months and then they would fire the bottom you know 50%. Um, but you know the that's not a good strategy for a company like Dropbox who is trying to retain people uh, and keep them um, aligned to the mission and be able to sell toward the mission. Uh, and so I think it's important to build that out in house. And um, to add to that, I would say that I, I took this analogy from a company that's very well known now. In the beginning of the company, they, they ran 100 experiments uh, in regards to their pricing. And I think if you apply that analogy to recruiting, um, you know, think of recruiting as a, this pie. You, you got a pie and you got a bunch of slices. And your recruiting approach in the beginning, you kind of want to get a bunch of slices here. You want to try different things from college recruiting. Well, maybe not, but like, but you know, as an example, college recruiting, internal referrals, right? Uh, sourcing from job boards, uh, actively reaching out, sourcing from recruiters and agencies itself, um, doing job postings. And it's, it's important, I think, to try a lot of these different things to kind of figure out where you're going to have the most uh, success uh, and then commit resources to doubling down on that itself. Yeah. If I'm the head of talent, I think of my job as being the router. 
And there are lots of different lanes coming into the router. It could be your internal networks. It could be people you source. It could be people who come to the website. But my job as the router is to determine whether or not these lanes are providing viable candidates and then to route them to the appropriate stakeholders and then move them through the process. And so, like, you know, as that router, you become a little bit agnostic on the the source of candidates. But uh, I think companies who have established uh, uh, quality sourcing capability will say that they have a higher prevalence of quality candidates coming through through sourcing channels because you are getting people who are gainfully employed and you are poaching them or going after them as opposed to waiting for them to come to you. How how about designing an interview process where you can evaluate, uh, you know, and then convince and and close candidates? What what do the great great companies do well or or non-obvious things that are really important to... Yeah, you know, I'll I'll start by saying this. I think um, one mentality that I encountered a lot in first-time founders is the the over-indexing on the evaluation. And it's like, it's it's a two-way street, right? You're, you're interviewing the candidate, but they are interviewing you. To go back to what I said earlier, like anybody who's good enough to join your company is good enough to join the, the companies where they can make a lot more money. And so like, what is the, the candidate experience that you are delivering to them? But ultimately, anybody who's good wants to be evaluated um, in, a, in a quality manner. You know, no, nobody who's good is going to join a company uh, whose, you know, technical team is giving them basic questions. And so you're essentially trying to uh, impress the candidate uh, by showing them that you know how to evaluate someone. Uh, but like that is, you know, just because they make it through your evaluation doesn't mean that you're going to be able to get them. And so uh, it really is this sort of balanced perspective that I try to uh, promote, which is like it, you know, it's 50% evaluation and 50% courtship. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the best talent, of course, is uh, passive talent, i.e. gainfully employed elsewhere or doing other things. What's the best advice for making sure you're reaching out to enough passive candidates or sourcing them or recruiting them, convincing them, whether they're at fang companies or, or elsewhere doing awesome stuff? Uh, I mean, I think your 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 stats on conversion will will tell the story. You know, if you reach out to 100 candidates and you can produce three warm leads, like that's not very good. Uh, and you should try to be uh, adhering to a higher standard. You know, I... I um, the way Google would run it is very crude, and you know each sourcer has a hundred targets that they're supposed to reach out to every every week. Uh, but if you're converting, you know, one out of two messages on on LinkedIn or one out of two messages out from from email, then maybe you don't need to reach out to a hundred people to get to your target. You know, I think um, it just depends on the variance that you have on your team. If you have a team of really strong recruiters, you can be less religious about those uh, those volume benchmarks. But if you are running a sort of agency environment or with younger people, you know, the, those protocols and, and, and standards are really important to uphold. Yeah, I, th- I think that you've mentioned it a few times, and I believe this as well, which is, dang it, I'm agreeing with you as well, <laughs> is is the 100 to 1, which is you're, you're going to reach out to about 100 cold leads to get one higher. And, and that generally stays true. You can kind of gain the numbers. And I think how it works out is like, you know, of the 100 people, let's say 20 of them reach back out to you and be like, hey, let's chat. Of those 20, maybe 10 will pass, will be really interested. Of those 10, half, so now you have five, will make it through like the first interview. Of those five, maybe two or three, or maybe two will make it to an offer stage and of one or two, well, you'll give an offer to. So I would say start with 100 to 1 as, as a good starting point and then kind of edit and, and tweak as you go along to see how your conversion is going to be. If your conversion at the very top of the funnel is really low, maybe you should diagnose that, right? Or, which I've seen as well too, no, very few people focus on this, which is the close. You spend all this time sussing a candidate. You interview them through phone screen. You've set messages itself. The teams met them. So you've spent maybe 10 hours spending a candidate. And if your close rate is like 10%, that sucks. That's that's really tough. So maybe you should start working on that close rate to bring it up to 50 or 60 or 70% and whatever you can do. And what are the levers you could pull there? 
The, the main one is is what I talked about in, in sort of being sure of the conversion when you issue the offer. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll borrow this from um, uh, Boris at, at Bink, uh, who talks about the method of asking a candidate, you know, if we, if we were able to, to extend you an offer today and all the comp details were, were in line, like, could you accept? Like, would you be ready, ready to join? And tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 how ready you are. Like, if the answer is anything but 9 or 10, you have more work to do. Oh, yeah, I'm a strong 7. Well, well tell me why you're not a 9 or 10. Like, what, what, is the, uh, what is the gap there? And, like, that gives the recruiter the opportunity to, to sort of investigate. And if you don't do that, you're essentially gambling and hoping that it converts. But so, I mean, I think that's the, the, the greatest control you have on your, your uh, close ratio. But I think, um, you know, going back to something that you were saying, like, uh, success in recruiting is not your offer extend ratio. It is your offer accept ratio at the end of the day. And it is really demoralizing to have a lot of offers unaccepted to the team who is interviewing people who they want to hire who they can't get. And so, um, you know, I think you, um, you definitely have to uh, consider the, the outcome, which in, in some cases is very binary as to whether you're successful in recruiting. And that's like, does the person join your company? Uh, I think another framework is uh, the the information curve. So if you had a XY plot, X is time and Y is information, uh, you're going to start seeing this gradually decline the longer you spend with the candidate. Uh, so in the beginning, you want to always ask the questions up front that are really important. Hey, how much money are you making? You know, Why are you leaving your current job? What's your ideal job? What kind of people do you want to work with? Where do you live and how far are you willing to commute? Because you want to get that information up front. And usually people are pretty open to discussing that in the beginning. And over time, you want to work towards kind of checking off each one of these things through the interview process. Or in the early parts, if, if you know that's not going to work, you got to address that up front. So for example, if someone lives in Los Gatos and you know, the company's in San Francisco, it's like, are you, you know, the first conversation could be, oh, I see that you live down there. We're up here. Are you willing to commute? Is that totally fine? I like constantly check in on that. And I think where things go wrong is you, people don't ask these questions. They're, they're afraid of, of, uh, or, or they just forget to ask them. And it's important to ask up front because you're going to get all this information. You're going to write it all down. And throughout the process, reiterate uh, the points that matter to the candidate, assuming it's a good fit. And if you do that, I think your close rate's going to go up. Yeah. And what are other uh, close tactics that you've seen be particularly effective? One, for example, might be leveraging investors. And what are some ta- other tactics, or how do you leverage investors most effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I always like to. Uh, have the investor speak to why they made the investment. You know, what is the big story behind the company? You know, what is the, the sort of, um, you know, the perfect world outcome for the company? Like, how is the world different? And like, give that pitch. Uh, and hopefully it's a little bit different than how the, how the CEO does the pitch. Uh, you can talk about the market opportunity. Uh, you can talk about, you know, the, the company's odds or what have you. Uh, but I think, you know, really just sort, sort of conveying the enthusiasm and also like just the evidence that the investor shows up on the call and can speak on behalf of their company is willing to do that shows a level of commitment from the investor yeah as, as an investor i think um investors can talk about the company in, in a different light one from the perspective of of why they invested um but the other perspective is like why they're so excited and, and how you've seen the team grow how you've seen the team evolve how you see other competitors in the space as well too it, it, it i think it the message lands a bit differently when an investor talks about it that i've seen work really well one one method that I think is is underutilized is uh, is focusing on the spouse. Uh, in most um, most cases, you know, if, if someone has a domestic partner or or a spouse, they are making a decision as a team. Uh, and very rarely do I see 
uh, founders or recruiting firms asking that question, well, how does your husband or wife feel about this? And how do they feel about your commute? Or how do they feel about the pay cut? Uh, and ignoring that, um, it leaves a huge blind spot in your visibility to how easily you can close this person. Uh, I've seen very effectively utilized uh, founders taking out the candidate and their spouse to dinner and sort of wooing both of them. Um, and, you know, I, I actually have been a candidate and, uh, and, um, uh, had this done on me and it was very effective for both me and my, and getting my wife on board. And so I, I think that's a, that's an often underused, um, method. Yeah. I think in looking at the candidate, um, you got to always consider where, where are they getting counsel from? Where are they getting advice and feedback from? And spouses of really key, key individual. Another one is their references. Yeah. And so whenever I do a reference on someone, a part of that is to suss the candidate out, but the other part is actually to sell the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I spend you know five ten minutes on this reference, just talking about the company, so that they know. I want them to walk out of that call going, "This is a cool company," and then to call that reference and be like, or the person that we're, I'm referencing, and be like, "You got to join this company." Yeah. And so you got to think about all the different individuals that counsel this candidate, and and making those touch points uh, and, and having them deliver a message for you. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times. Uh, I've had a candidate say to me, well, you know, I think the offer is low because I talked to my friend and my friend is getting X, right? And that's like one data point, right? Sample size. Uh, but it but it can be highly influential on a candidate. And so uh, to your point, understanding those those uh, inputs and influences is important. Yeah. yeah quick note, my friend Daniel Gross says the best time to recruit people is when they've just come back from vacation because they're sort of, you know, in the mood of, oh, you know. Q4 recruiting is the best. Yeah, Q4, one. it is it is a time between, I'm, I can't believe I'm sharing my secrets here. <laughs> it's, it's Thanksgiving to Christmas. Because imagine when you're, yeah. when you're back home, right? You know, you, all your defenses are down. It is just who you are. You, you know, you're probably sleeping in the same bed that you grew up in, right? It doesn't even fit you. And then you're sitting around the table, you know, you're, all the families around, they're going to ask you, look, how are things going? And it causes you to think about your life, to think about what am I doing? Am I enjoying it? Do I like to work with the people that I work with? And if the answer is no, I can guarantee you that week after you're going to be like, I'm going to start looking for a job, right? And on top of that, bonuses are usually paid out in Q4. And so you're going to start looking from November to December to make a, a decision on a job by early January once the bonus is paid out. Q4 is a great time. So so whenever between Thanksgiving and New Year's, when I was in recruiting, I never took a break. I never took time off other than Thanksgiving, but I worked all throughout the holidays because that's when people were meeting. That's when people were thinking about their time and, and what they were looking to do. And so uh, Q4 is a great time to recruit. Yeah. Historically, I remember it in years in agency, um, the, the seasonality would always follow the similar pattern, which is you get a huge spike, you know, Q1, and then the busiest months of the, of the year is, is Q2. And then it kind of dies off in the summer. And then it picks back up with, with, a, with a force in September, October, and then it just tapers off until the first of the year. To your point, you know, that the go-getter recruiters are working a little bit in advance because, you know, an average search process takes three, four months to go through. So if you're starting in November, December, you're closing in January, February. And so, you know, keeping that in mind and trying to get ahead of it is is important. Yeah. Are there any other earned secrets uh, or pearls of wisdom that are top of mind in your in your vault that uh, the world would be better off if they, if they knew? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, we just talked about the seasonality of recruiting. But there's also seasonality recruiting in regards to the weather. Like, <laughs> can t- can't tell you how many candidates I've recruited from Seattle 
the moment they step off the plane and come to California, they're like, there's sunshine here. <laughs> That's amazing. Or or East Coast, right? Yeah. Those December months, bitter cold, shoveling. You know, I've just shoveled three feet of snow, uh, yeah. and they come out to California like it's always like this. <laughs> so you know. We're, a little, we're, we're very lucky to be here. I would also say following, um, you know, the, the obvious time to, to reach out to someone is when they've hit their four-year vest and, they, you know, they, they've vested all their stock, uh, but also the one-year vest. Um, also, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody who's been at a job for one or two months uh, because they may have gotten in there and realized they don't like what they bought. You are aggressive. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people get back to me. That's I mean, especially I like if it's a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. The, the vesting clips are really important uh, because the, the handcuffs are a little bit looser. Right, and so reaching out the, at those points. At, at when I was at Riviera, we would have a ticker. And anytime, anytime someone who hit a two-year vest, call. Yeah. Like just give them a call, send them an email. Like, hey, let's just grab coffee. It, they're all willing to chat. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned re- reference checks. W- what's the most non-obvious insight or most important way, w- framework for evaluating uh, how to do reference checks uh, really well or how to build a structure around it? So I think um, there's a tendency for individuals to launch into a reference. And when you do that, I think the the person you're referencing tends to get a little defensive, right? Because you're this person coming in trying to find the flaws in my friend mm-hmm. or the person that I work with, right? And I think it's 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 becomes a much more productive conversation when those defenses are down. And so what I usually like to say, and I start out with by saying, is, hey, thank you so much for taking some time to 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 chat about, you know, so and so. We really like this person a lot. And um, uh, we're excited to work with them itself. And so we'd love to just kind of get some little bit more details around things. And so if you, by, just by starting out like that, the person's like, oh, this is an interesting perspective. And then I think the second part is like putting them on, putting them on your side and, and giving them this accountability. So a question I use is, now imagine you just joined the board of this company, right? And this candidate is starting next week. And you're on the board and you're talking to all the board members. What would you say to, to set this person up for success? And what would you say to the other board members? Right? It's, it's basically the classic weakness question. Yeah. But you're, you're framing it in the way of you're all, we're all on the same team. And so what would you say to your peers? It's a, it's a very subtle difference. But you get very high quality answers from that um, on top of like decreasing the defenses in the beginning. And the last part is just doing a, a call. You know, someone's... When you can see their eyes and they can see your eyes, they're going to be a lot more forthright than on a phone call itself. So all of my references, I do through Zoom. Back channel references, what I like to do is I will send an email to the to the referencer and saying, you know, I won't identify the candidate. I'll say, hey, I've got a question on, you know, somebody that you overlapped with at company X. And nine times out of 10, an executive takes that call. I'll get on the phone with them, and then I will share the name. So this is in regards to, you know, <laughs> the curiosity, and it's the it's the first emotional response that you get. If it's oh yeah, Bob is amazing. I love Bob. Right, the enthusiasm is very clear. If it's oh yeah, Bob, <laughs> nice guy. Yeah, I love Bob. Yeah, um, you can sort of tell. And yes, a reference call to your point, Andy, is all around like, when do you get to that question about the weaknesses, right? And how do you ask it? And so I, I really like the approach that you've taken. Another a couple that I've, that I have heard, uh, one is what would that per- person's performance review say? Their most recent one, if you had to guess, or what would the critics say? What would the, what would this person's critics say about them? Uh, like, you know, everybody's got a critic. Everybody's got something they can be criticized about. It's sort of disempowering that uh, and, and getting people to chime in. Uh, but you know, to your point, you can't dive right into that. Yeah. 
One I like is if this didn't work out in three months or six months, what, why would that be? Uh, I also heard um, Dan Green was telling us that she likes to ask references for other referrals um, or even recruit them <laughs> directly. Um, and sometimes that can be effective. Don't spill all the secrets. Here. Come on. <laughs> totally. People say that founders in the beginning should spend, you know, 50% or some percentage of huge percentage of their time recruiting. What's the best leverage for their time during that time? Is it, is it taking meetings? Is it, is it doing something else? Is it speaking, you know, marketing, et cetera. And how does that evolve in terms of how the founders should be involved in recruiting as you bring on your first talent person or as you scale uh, or as you build out your recruiting work where founders should, should be involved? There are so many high value activities that the CEO can perform in recruiting. And I think the first touch is so essential. You know, if you get somebody who's really good, who's willing to talk to your company, that converting that first touch is so important. And if you send anyone else besides the CEO to convert that first touch, you're like not doing everything that you can be doing. With that said, um, you can't investigate every opportunity as if it's a, you know, golden opportunity. And so, um, you know, that you have to be judicious on, you know, whether it's a good use of the CEO's time. Now, bringing someone in as a first recruiter, I think, can really allow leverage here because, you know, if that person can develop some of the judgment of that CEO and can act as a first filtering mechanism and can also sell, they tee up that first conversation with some context. And then the CEO can sort of take the ball and run with it. But, you know, they are, they are essentially, um, you know, trying to uh, trying to make sure that the, there is some kind of safeguard on the CEO's calendar, uh, and that every activity is high leverage. Um, but you know, I don't know that there is a percentage that I would shoot for, or you know, if um, you know, this there's a, a across the board policy that I would adhere to. Yeah. How, when you're talking to a founder and they're hiring their first few, few employees, and you're like, "Oh, I don't even know if you should hire for this exact role," or or you're not thinking about it the right way. In terms of what to hire for, what common mistakes do they have or what common advice do you, you know, what's the right framework for, for thinking about? I always go to what do you need this person to do? And then I ask the question, if you hired them and they were in the role for 12 months, how do you know that they've been successful? Like what impacts have they made? And that really kind of rewinds it. Uh, because I think a lot of times people go to the task list and, you know, we need this person to do all these different things. And so, you know, like, you know, they evaluate their experience, but you know, I think it's it's really um, you know trying to envision that person in the role and, and success in that role. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, a question that I ask is, if you were sitting down a year from now doing this person's review, what will they have accomplished? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it just gives that clarity around what you need. How do you recruit people, uh, Jose, who are at Facebook or Google or Amazon? You know, really comfy, awesome positions. So I think that if you are reaching out to somebody who like went from university to Apple, to Google, to Facebook, to Netflix, there's no evidence in that person's background that they're going to do a startup. And so like, I see that conversion is probably like one out of 25. That's not a good use of, of my time as, as a recruiter. And so what I would look for is evidence that somebody has joined a startup. They've been a founder of a startup. They've been involved with a VC. They have some kind of interest in the space because if there's no evidence that they've done it, like why would you assume that they'd do it this time? Uh, I would also say that, um, you know, um, people are probably not going to leave Google, Facebook, Apple, you know, at month eight, nine, ten of their first year, you know, of employment. Uh, but after that first year, you know, a lot of people, especially those who have done startups before, feel a little stifled by the big company atmosphere and, and culture uh, and can be poached then. Uh, but, you know, again, going back to startup people versus big company people, I want to know that this person can at least put on the startup person hat. Totally. And, and last on the recruiting side, are there any typical traits you see of well-funded companies who, who just don't hire efficiently um, for, for whatever reason or, or make other mistakes that we, we haven't yet mentioned? 
that you come in and well, you know, I think I, and I was actually listening to, to your podcast talking about remote hiring. Um, you know, I think that still you have most companies who get funding from Silicon Valley VCs trying to build their teams in the Bay Area. And I think that uh, it's really competitive and really noisy, but it's hard to manage teams remotely. The companies, however, who can pull it off and who can do it, give themselves a huge advantage in, in scaling teams. And so, you know, that's sort of putting the the, the hard work at the, the front end of the process. But, uh, you know, I think the companies who have done it well uh, are glad they did it. What, what can you say about technical recruiting? You just mentioned the Holloway uh, Guide and you just meant a ton of technical recruiting. What, what do the great technical recruiters do that uh, separate themselves from the, just the good ones? I think that they are not afraid of learning the technology. And that doesn't mean that they have to become an engineer, but like, you know, have some curiosity about how open source works, like know how to talk about the differentiating technology of your company, spend time with the engineers and ask them questions and be naturally curious. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also, you know, being able to address candidate uh, mindset, motivators, um, you know, uh, their details on the phone up front and sort of getting to those questions instead of being afraid to ask, you know, what are the roadblocks, you know, what about the commute, things like that. Um, gosh, what else? I think, um, if, if the recruiter can sit in, in feedback sessions for the interview and hear the feedback being discussed by the engineering team and really understand sort of what works and what doesn't work within a given company or culture that empowers them more. Uh, and I think that that accelerates their learning. Let's talk about exec search firms. Let's talk about recruiting firms. Let's talk about them as businesses. Like, how are they so big? Uh, what moats do they have? And uh, what differentiates them? You, you spend time at Riviera. And then let's talk about how founders should approach them, work with them, and, and think about them in terms of what mental models make sense. Yeah, so um, you know, I don't know if uh, if this is, is okay to be discussed on the podcast, but you know, some of these recruiting firms, like one in particular, I know one of, one of the top firms in the Bay Area, they did $160 million last year in revenue. And like, this is executive searches. Um, and, you know, I think founders, especially newer founders, first time founders are really reluctant to hire a search firm and nobody likes to pay hundred K like that's, that's across the board. But the reality is that executive search firms drive the majority of executive hiring in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and whether you are using, you know, the, the, the sort of public, uh, well-known big four firms for, for late stage hiring, or whether you're using one of the Silicon Valley boutiques for early stage hiring, that is the, the majority of, of volume coming through the market. Yeah, I think in, in, in advising the founders, they're obviously very hesitant, hesitant. The sticker shock is quite high. But in reframing it and going, you're going to spend 100000 to generate, to get someone in who's going to be so critical to the company that can generate an order of magnitude more. Yeah, that's great. Right? Um, I think it just kind of clicks a little bit more. The second thing is, is uh, an executive search person is going to widen your network a lot, right? Because that's all they think about. Because they're out there finding the, the, the best individuals, the up-and-coming individuals, getting to know them, developing those relationships over the period of years itself. And you as a founder, um, you're probably going to be in product review sessions. You're going to be talking to customers all the time. You're going to be fundraising. And it's like that network is really hard to tap into. And so in many ways, you're paying for the expertise in the network of these individuals. Uh, it's like, you know, I just saw a doctor today. I, just, I went to see the doctor because that person has an expertise and years of, 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 of practicing that craft that I'm, that I'm paying money for. Itself. And executive search is exactly the same way is you got to choose the right executive search firm that understands the market you're going after, um, has developed really good relationships with candidates itself, and of course can, can do good work itself, but you're paying for that itself. 
There's also a labor component to this. Like when when you're done with the search and you look back at the statistics, like a well-run search, there are 500 names on the, the, the candidate target list, right, to get to your short list of maybe 25 people that you touch and maybe 15 people that you bring in to, to meet the team, you know, to get to your finalist. And like who's going to send those 500 emails? Is it the CEO? Is it your internal recruiter? Uh, you know, the, these search firms have built a, a, a business and a customer experience out of doing this. And so, you know, they, they sort of know how to on-ramp and, and get the most out of it. The average time in search is 137 days. That's from the most recent Andreessen Horowitz study, and that's across all functions. And so, you know, my, my advice to founders was always like, when do you want your 137 days to start? Like, you know, by the time you select the search firm, you know, kick off, uh, run the search, you know, hire the candidate, and then they resign, take some time off, and then join your company, and then take a few months to ramp up to competency. Now you're talking about a potential nine to 12 month uh, window of time. And so I think uh, reluctance leads to companies starting too late, and then you're under the gun and you're reactive. Yeah, most companies will raise in, in roughly a two, two and a half year time frame, right? Their burn rate is roughly around there until cash out. And so if you, like Jose said, if you, if you don't get it right the first time, you kind of have one more shot. And so do you really want to risk that critical role on, on 100K? And I think to, to partner with a search firm effectively, um, the search firm brings people to the table and hopefully helps qualify them and hopefully helps run references and close. But like the founder cannot offload selling to the search firm. Ultimately, the CEO and the company are principally responsible for getting that candidate over the line and getting them to accept. And like, you could have the best search firm in the world selling the opportunity to, to the best ability. But if there's no genuine connection or chemistry between the CEO and the candidate, it's not going to work. And so I think, um, understanding those roles and understanding what the CEO is supposed to do, um, can en enable them to work with a search firm more effectively. And yeah, say more about what's the best advice for CEOs to incentivize the, the, the firm to work most effectively and why, why the first few weeks are so important. In the first few weeks of a search, I think, are the most important because it sets the tone of the search. Um, it sets the direction at which the search firm is going to hunt for candidates. And so let's just say you start off a search and you're like, I'm looking for uh, 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 someone who wears blue shirts, right? And then you realize six weeks in, you're like, oh, I actually want someone who wants red shirts, right? Then they got to turn up all these blue shirt candidates and then research for red shirt candidates. And so that's why at the beginning, it's it's really important to to clearly communicate and let the search firm kind of dig really deep into the company to understand what you actually really need. And I would say, I always say that um, searches run long. One of the reasons searches run, run long is because the founding team or the CEO, whoever is running the search, doesn't know what they want. And so that first part is so important because this is the engagement. This is the direction of the search. You got to be very clear and spend the time to for the firm to, to get to know you and the recruiter to get to know you, to ask, to interview the, all the other executives, um, talk to the investors to really build up this profile of the company. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. If, if you have lack of alignment at the beginning, you're going to waste time on a thread that is not beneficial to the company. And I think, um, you know, the really well-run searches, um, this is not every case, obviously, but um, they have a, a quicker ID velocity, meaning from the time that the search was kicked off to when the finalist was identified, well-run searches, the finalist is identified in the first month and a half of the search. And it's more rare that you get the finalist candidate identified in month six, because if you know what you're looking for and you've mapped the market correctly, you're getting to the likely characters earlier on in the process. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you change the thesis on the search halfway through, uh, you're essentially starting over the, the project. And most search firms will actually cancel the contract if there's a material change in scope. 
Is is uh is there a framework for determining when it's for exec hiring across the board when it's right to work with a firm versus when when it's not or slash do you have any other advice or non obvious insights that's important for founders to think about when building out their exec team? Talk with experts. Definitely um, leverage your network of advisors and investors to connect you with experts and ask for that favor. Hey, will you spend an hour with me just to talk about hiring? What should I think about? How should I evaluate this person? You know, what will success look like? And be willing to do that a couple of times and be willing to ask that favor. Um, You know, an investor can't always like provide a warm candidate for you, but they could provide an expert to give you advice. Lastly, I'm curious to talk about the the future uh, of recruiting. Uh, and maybe one way I'll frame it is, let's say we were running a recruiting uh, a VC firm focused on investing in the future of recruiting or incubating companies in the future uh, of recruiting. You know, I, I think Rivera is like a $10 billion company. Or some of these are enormous. And we were, let's say we're trying to compete with them or build, you know, LinkedIn is a tw- $26 billion company that, that sold. What would we be looking to to invest in or incubate? Like what's what's interesting? What, what's gonna, what are going to be big companies in the space? Slash, why has it been so hard? It's a great question. You know, I I think that there are a lot of companies that have popped up in the evaluation space, like, you know, coding assessments and things like that, uh, which, you know, really help to sort of, you know, um, triple uh, byte interviewing IO. Exactly. To, to, to filter the top of the funnel and make sure that you are only talking to qualified candidates. The other side of that is like, can you close those candidates? Like, does this candidate have 10 offers on the platform and now you're one out of 10? Uh, and so I think there's been a lot of excitement around the space because you can provide a sort of mathematical engineering based, you know, scientific based method of evaluation, uh, but it didn't, it does not equal a recruiting solution. And so I think the recruiting solutions are always going to be on sale from the recruiting company, like firms out there, like, like Riviera, what have you. Uh, and the products in the space are like tackling one portion of the value chain. So it's either assessment or it's sourcing or it's, you know, candidate tracking, but it's like, it's not the whole thing. Now, LinkedIn is the, is the 800 pound gorilla in the room and it is something of a walled garden. And like, I don't know that you can have an effective recruiting strategy without utilizing LinkedIn recruiter, uh, but it's not the only game in town. And so like, you know, I don't, I think it would be very difficult for a new social network to come in and disrupt LinkedIn's position, especially now that it's part of Microsoft. Uh, but like maybe you can have sort of, you know, niche experiences or niche audiences that are, you know, ultimately acquirable by LinkedIn. Um, the, the the majority of the market today is still humans and individuals and firms being run. Uh, whether that's the case in five years from now, like I, I don't think it will be the case. I think there will be more companies that that are popping up addressing one part of the problem, uh, but the overall solution is really hard to to solve for. You know, Link, LinkedIn did something very disruptive in the industry. They they took resumes and put it online. It sounds very simple, but you you took what was a an asset that only the candidate had and you made it public, and and that's why you know. Pre LinkedIn, you had a bunch of agencies because the best agencies are the ones that had the biggest databases, right? They, they had the most candidates in their databases. And so you had these like walled gardens everywhere of different recruiting firms that had these databases. And then LinkedIn basically went, you know, can get rid of that. And then the candidates going to maintain their, their resume online and there's going to be a source of truth. That was very disruptive in the industry. I think the next big innovation is going to be similar to the airline industry where, you know, pre kayak, you know, travel agents had their own book of business and there was obscurity in regards to, you know, who's flying where and what price, you know, are those routes. And it was very frustrating. Imagine trying to call 20 different travel agents just to find the best price and the best route. Kayak made that very transparent. They aggregated it all and it made, made it e- very easy for the consumer to kind of figure that out. I think recruiting, I don't know how it's going to pan out, but recruiting is very, in many ways, a, a non-transparent kind of uh, behavior right now. I'm looking for a new job and I have all these criteria that I'm not going to post. 
and the company has is looking for all these you know uh, candidates and they're not gonna they, they're kind of already posting some of these things that we're looking for people that do this we're looking for people who can commute to here we're looking for people roughly in this pay band itself but it's still not a very efficient process so i think someone's going to solve this where you have a very fluid marketplace in regards to companies and candidates and it's going to be very transparent i don't know how it's going to really end up uh, but if anyone out there is solving this, I want to hear about it. <laughs> One interesting Shame area I think is, is referencing tools. Um, and so Teamable existed for a little while, and that's more of a recruiting, like, can you recruit through your network? Uh, but there's an interesting YC company called Searchlight, uh, which is really going references first. Uh, and they start to build out a, a back-channel referencing capability. And the idea is that, like, hey, if I join your platform, I'm willing to say, hey, you can back-channel me within my network. I'm giving you that okay. And then they go and back-channel people uh, and ultimately can construct a pretty uh, composite index of what somebody's like as an employee or coworker. Uh, and like that, to me, is sufficiently different than what you can get from other tools and, and insights because it has to be collected manually uh, and not every search practitioner collects it manually as well. So I, I think that's an interesting space where we're seeing innovation and where you could see additional sort of sources of trust pop up. Totally. Yeah, I think as a B2B company, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I wonder if even more broadly, and there would be more companies in the space because, as Andy said, the big disruption was putting resumes online. That's what LinkedIn did. You know, an even bigger one might be putting references online in some capacity. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it can't look directly online because it's confidential information. But hey, at the time, resumes were confidential information. And so there are lots of clever ways that that, that can happen. Um, but the, not just references, the idea of like what there's a lot of information in people's head about, you know, you all have your top 10 lists of people, you know, who you think are most valuable, who you would never work with, et cetera. And, you know, that information is very valuable. And if that could be digitized or made legible in some way, people would pay a lot of money for it. If you were trying to compete with one of the major multi-billion dollar firms, or, or if you were investing in something that was trying to do that, what would that need to look like? I think you need to have senior people who are founders who really know what they're doing and can bring a differentiated approach through either their own experience or their own insight. Uh, and then I think the next most important thing is learning and development and creating content that can disseminate that insight or that ability down to the next layer and then hiring people and bringing them up to speed quickly. That's the model of, of every search firm out there. The, the senior person opens the account. The junior person does the execution. The, the delta there is sort of how good can that junior person be. And so I think really investing in content and training for the people is the differentiator and how I would think about building the business. So I think extending on that, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that is lost and that is recreated on every single search. So let's just say I just finished a search and I'm now doing another search itself. What if I had a visibility over all the previous searches and all the candidates that made it to the finalist level and all the candidates that are interested in this specific area that said no to the search, uh, the previous search and could be interested in this? I think, you know, what Andreessen built um, in regards to their talent platform is, is very clever because tapping into the institutional knowledge and surfacing it using technology or using some kind of platform is, is really helpful. Uh, the challenge right now is most search firms don't focus on tech very much. Um, every single search is kind of new and then whatever they remember. But I think there's there's a way for tech to really disrupt that industry in, in, a, in a meaningful way so that it can service all the institutional knowledge. And, and last question, you mentioned sweat, sweat equity. How should we think about emerging business models uh, in the space? 
Yeah, and I, I think um, sweat equity did, did the industry a favor by, by moving us in that direction. Uh, I think that you will see copycat firms or rather, you know, firms who are inspired by that business model. Uh, you know, the, the, the question will be, can they get as uh, – as influential and important of a backer as sweat equity did to, to build out the concept. Uh, but I think, um, you know, the idea of trading equity for value added services, uh, I think a lot of investors compete on that basis today, uh, but it's in a far more abstract way uh, or a more, more removed way where, you know, they may know the best search partners in the market, or they may even have someone in house who helps with some portion of it. Um, but sweat equity's real Dis- differentiator is that you know they don't draw any distinction there. They're going to get in to do the work as if they were employees of the company, and they're going to earn equity as if they were employees of the company. And so um, you know that is that is unique today. Um, and you know I, I don't know that any other firms uh, offer the same type of uh, a value proposition. But you know that is the direction that I think that um, Dan and Sweat Equity have been able to move the market. The good thing is that the market is 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 incredibly efficient in the sense that there's there's money to be made. Um, so Recruiting is not going away because um, we need, God forbid, that <laughs> it does go away. But you need people to to help build companies, yeah. right? And you know where the idea is going to come from, I don't know. Um, but the incentives are all there, yeah. and so I can guarantee you, there's going to be some innovative recruiter, some innovative founder, some innovative executive that's going to come up and go like, "Hey, what if we could do this?" You know, I think what interviewing the IO is doing is is incredibly interesting, where they're masking the voices of the the candidate you're interviewing to remove bias right so you what you hear is doesn't sound like a man or a woman right so you don't you can't you can't anchor on that itself i would have never thought of that but aileen is you know all the credit to her and her team figured out something very unique in regards to that you know hire.com um is is it took i think the first step to making the recruiting process more transparent by having a marketplace of candidates and companies online and and Jim, to your point, is basically taking all the tools of, of you know marketers and Salesforce and giving it to recruiting. Mm-hmm. You know, the good thing is that the incentives are there, and and these ideas will pop up. And uh, you know, I I love chatting about these ideas. Yeah. And, and maybe to close where, where we began is the, have you come across a startup that is legitimately doing some version of Moneyball for for talent, i.e., just systematically better identifying or evaluating talent that is more likely to, to, to work for them or identifying mispriced assets? And if so, what were they doing? Or, or is that is that feasible or reasonable for a startup to develop that capacity? Well, I think companies that hire remotely, so GitLab being one of them, um, GitHub being one of them, you know, finding uh, people who are, are going to be um, priced uh, you know, less expensively, but are also going to be more loyal. Um, you know, I, I think that that's sort of one of the, the judo moves that I've seen. You can only moneyball when either it's your singular focus or you have scale. And, you know, Google has moneyballed pretty well, I would say, uh, because they have the scale. They have a bunch of reports, um, you know, research reports that they've released that talk about their interview process, what's successful. But but they have scale. I think, you know, for firms, you're going to my hope is you're going to see some pretty interesting firms that are focused on recruiting, like a like a hired, like a gem, like a, even a Riviera, you know, they have their own database that will pop up um, because, again, the incentives are there. Yeah, I think open source is another vector. You know, companies that are leveraging open source can find uh, developers or contributors all over the world. And, you know, whether or not they are sort of traditionally credentialed, you know, they can know they're good and, and bring them in. So I've seen that utilized effectively. You know, I think um, new grad hiring or relocating people, you know, can also be a method to, to find undervalued assets. Um, you know, looking in, in 
uh, other markets. Like there's a company called Terminal, uh, which will basically set up uh, an engineering office. I think they, they use Vancouver and Montreal uh, for Silicon Valley-based companies. So, you know, that, that can work as well. Given the given the availability of information out there, you know you can you can probably become a really good engineer, if not a super proficient engineer, with all free resources out there, or you know a, a, a library membership if people still go to those. And and so it'll be interesting to see over the next uh, in, in the immediate future um, the the moving away from quality by proxy versus quality by just raw ability, meaning. If someone went to a great university and studied CS, there's a pretty good understanding that they're probably, you know, they've gone through these courses and they got this, if they got this grade, they're probably pretty good. But how do you evaluate someone who doesn't have any of those credentials at all, right? What assessment do you go through itself? I'd be interested to see, you know, who can identify those because uh, right now, let's see, 3% of the world has a college degree. 97% of the world doesn't have a college degree. Like, that is a huge untapped resource. One example comes to mind uh, of Eventbrite, and I met a director of engineering there who basically spearheaded an initiative to start hiring uh, bootcamp grads onto the front end team. And um, what that meant was reevaluating the selection criteria, uh, which means changing the culture of the engineering team to some extent uh, and explaining to them that, you know, these folks are not going to have the same type of depth as a computer science grad, but that they can perform the work that we need them to do and that we need to be able and willing to uh, reconsider how we evaluate these people coming in. You know, if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to, you know, be willing, be able to take advantage of, the, of that lopsided uh, market that Andy's describing. Yeah. You know, one, one method is, is innovating on the assessment of tests, triple by you know, interviewing IO. Another method is identifying new sort of data sets that, that could emerge that would help give better, uh, you know, hope for like a matter mark for, for, for this type of thing. So that might be interesting. Uh, maybe in, in, in real closing, it's interesting why, why Riviera or some of these other recruiting firms don't have, you know, really big venture firms associated with them. You know, as, as you're proving, uh, recruiters can be, uh, you know, great venture capitalists, um, and, and have a lot, you know, not just the skills that, that overlap, but hey, real asset. Here's a database of all these candidates and all the people we know about them. Um, it's, uh, I, I wonder why we're seeing more, more hybrid institutions. I think you're going to see that happen going forward. I think, you know, me moving into venture, I didn't really anticipate it. Uh, it, it, it was a lucky accident and, and, and it's worked out really well. Um, but you're right. When you look at the core skills uh, of someone in venture and, and someone who's, who's been in talent itself, some of those skills overlap really well. And, and I think there just wasn't a venue for that to happen. But some, some of the conversations that I've, I've heard of at VC firms, they're specifically targeting individuals from a talent background. And so I think you'll, you'll begin to see that, especially now that there's, what, 300 talent partners in the industry. Mm-hmm. So these talent partners now have recruiting experience and also venture experience. I think you're going to see a lot of people move into venture as well, too, which is great. Yeah, and, and, and certainly no, no disrespect to any of those 300 people, but it really took the first dozen or so, you know, people like Andy, people like Dan Portillo, who were hired as the first talent partners into these firms who really helped to define the industry. And yes, as as the role becomes more well understood, then com- firms start to, to hire and sort of emulate these practices. But, you know, it's... um. 
it takes a special person to sort of move the market in that direction. And I think that's what Andy did effectively. Uh, and to your point, you know, I think other firms will follow suit. Uh, and there are a handful of, of talent partners in the space whose networks do rival the best executive search firms uh, and who have been close enough to the action to understand how to evaluate an investment. And, you know, people can be coached up and, and learn how to do it. Uh, but it is an interesting uh, undiscovered talent pool of folks to, to consider uh, for potential investor roles. I guess I'll agree with you there as well. You can <laughs> say. And that's a perfect place to, to end. Um, I guess today I've been Jose Gardado and Andy Chen. If you have an opportunity to work with uh, Jose, uh, I highly recommend it. We're already uh, you know, spending some Village Global companies his way. And if you have a chance to have Andy uh, work with Andy and have him and Kotu on, on your cap table, I, I highly recommend it uh, as well. Uh, guys, thank you for putting on a clinic uh, on all things uh, talent. Uh, thank you guys for coming to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.